Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to March Madness 365. I'm Andy Katz. I hope everyone is staying safe out there as we navigate the coronavirus. But more importantly, over the past few weeks, we have seen an awakening in this country towards systemic racism. And through the voice of the people, we are hoping to see change. One thing is certain. Student-athletes are feeling more empowered to speak up in a powerful way, not seen since the 1960s. But their impact may be even more great, since their ability to actually be heard and listened to in 2020 is greater through social media platforms. There's been social activism to combat social injustice in the past few weeks, and college students aren't even on campus yet. When they do arrive in droves in the fall, expect the outcry to be even louder. So I wanted to engage coaches and student athletes through our podcast, find people who have a perspective, and I'm hopeful you'll be enlightened by what you're hearing this week. This week on the podcast, I'll be joined by Leonard Hamilton of Florida State. Hamilton is 71, which I constantly have to check every time since he doesn't seem to age. He was a graduate of Tennessee Martin and really should have been a head coach before 1986 when Oklahoma State hired him. But since then, he rebuilt programs at Miami and Florida State with a stop at the Washington Wizards in between. Hamilton will discuss his path and the obstacles he faced before we get to our weekly segment, his dream player. Ten categories that I selected for him, he's going to find ten players to fit those categories. I did this with North Carolina's Roy Williams and Syracuse's Jim Beheim over the past few weeks. If you want to find those podcasts, just go to ncw.com or our March Madness social media handles. You'll be able to find our previous episodes. And then you'll hear my Cats Ranks, a top 10 list of the top rebounders, the dirty work guys, since 2011 to coincide with Hamilton's list since Florida State has always had rebounders and rim protectors. Also on our podcast this week, Minnesota guard Gabe Klauscher will also join me. The shooting guard is from Udina, Minnesota, right near the epicenter of the protests after the murder of George Floyd. Klauscher can offer up what I think is a pretty unique perspective. He's from Minnesota plays at Minnesota. They'll discuss this period of reform and change that we're all experiencing. All right, let's get going. Here's my interview with Florida State's Leonard Hamilton. It's been quite a spring, to say the least, We're going through unprecedented times, a global pandemic, first time in our lifetimes, and really a, a movement to help, we hope, uh, cure systemic racism in this country that's been going on literally for 400 years after the tragic murder of George Floyd. Uh, and Leonard, I first want to deal with that about why this feels different. I mean, you, you've experienced racism in, in your life and you've overcome so much to get to where you are. Uh, but why does, why does this moment in time in your life feel different for you? Well, I think obviously, politically, we have a climate that has created a lot of unusual 
uh, type experimental uh, chemistry than what we've been accustomed to over the many, many years, regardless of whether, what, what political side you're on, good, bad, and indifferent. And I'm not trying to make a declaration on that, but there has just been a lot of unusual um, things being put out in the atmosphere that causes you to think uh, about things that we have not been accustomed to. I mean, not only nationally, but internationally, the relationships that we have now all over the world, the relationships that seem to be developing here. And then I think in the in since we've had cell phones where a lot of these things that have been going on that a lot of us feel that's inappropriate, over the top and abusive, it's been it's been exposed but sometimes with several of the incidents you never really knew exactly what went on. But in this particular case with Mr. Floyd, <clears throat> I mean it was it was a it was well uh videoed and where you saw something going on consistently for a long period of time. It wasn't any hustle, it wasn't any resistance going on. And it it's it, it just said volumes about the mindset of the officers during that, that, that situation. And uh, the interesting thing here is that when you look at the, the faces on the three policemen, they're nonchalant, unemotional, the way they went about dealing with this, these circumstances, and then hearing a guy suffering, begging for his life, and seeing the the lack of sympathy or understanding or care, I think it has brought something out of so many different people. And I think what has what and the what you see is the manifestation of a lot of things happening over a number of years. The atmosphere as it exists politically, socially, nationally, internationally, that has caused so much diverse attention, I mean, attention from people from all walks of life. And what makes it feel different is that a lot of the times when I was on the TV on and see the, the demonstrators, sometimes over half of the demonstrators are not African-American. They're a mixture of old, young, uh, middle-aged, uh, Caucasians and Hispanics, and it's just like it's affected everybody. This that that they're demanding that something be done about it, and and what has been interesting is that it's, it's happening in fifty states, and now it's going worldwide, where you have different countries protesting uh, at our embassy about what's going on in America. So it's obvious that this has taken on a, a, a new life, new meaning, and, and, and an exceptional focus to the point where people just now fighting for change and, and want something to be, wanted to be addressed in some type of way. You lived through the 60s. Um, I mean, how would you compare what we're going through in 2020 to 1968? Well, 
even though I lived through the 60s, you know, I, I, I have read and I'm very familiar about the things that happened in the 50s and even beyond the challenges that, that we've had racially. Um, so obviously, it's being raised in the South, it was uh, part of the challenge we had to prepare ourselves, you know, for, for your adult life. And you had a mindset of, of what you had to deal with. So uh, this is kind of where we are. But the, the, the thing that has happened now, Andy, is that people seem to be saying enough is enough. And we have so much more of a diverse uh, society. We have so much interaction going on with um, with uh, people of different races and cultures. The schools are integrated and the colleges and people are interacting. So there's more of an understanding of each other and, and relationships. And I just think that it's just is bringing things to a head, and it's really interesting to see um, how this pans out. It's always been my philosophy of this. Whenever there is something that's really important, you know, we develop a plan of how we're going to address it. What has happened in America over the years, we have a group over here, a group over there, and this city, that city, but we have not, never really had what I call an official, authorized, task force, mandated to identify the issues, come up with a plan with the goal in mind of coming up with a solution that we all can be happy about. And that has never happened. We have pockets of things going on. You know, the Democrats over here, the Republicans over here, the Black Talkers, the Urban League, the Center for This, and the different group over here. I think everybody's intentions, but we have never had a group that we said we're going to identify what our problems are. We're going to study it. <clears throat> we're going to get everybody involved, that, and we 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 going we going to get this done. That has never happened, and so hopefully this will just create a mindset that we all need to get together and have serious conversations. And let's just don't brush it under the rug. Let's see how we can improve and make this country a better place for all of us to live. Leonard, I just want to go back to, to just one, uh, you know, time period in your life where um, you were more than qualified to be a head coach. Um, and you had to wait because there was an era where it was not um, accepted in certain parts of the country, or you could argue at times at all, uh, for an African-American to be a head coach. Um when you look back on your life and you think back to that period uh, before you became the head coach at Oklahoma State, um, what was that like for you to know that you could have been, should have been, but someone had to sort of, I, I don't want to say take that chance, but within their world, take that chance uh, and actually just just hire you uh, because you were qualified and yet others you know, may have chosen not to because of the color of your skin? Well, I had great advice from my father in the early part of my life growing up and to never make excuses. He told me, don't ever come to him making excuses because you basically control your destiny. Uh, he said, the first thing he said, don't ever let anybody outwork you, ever. He said, because if you lie to be close 
whoever is evaluating you might make a mistake. So, so with that mindset, I, I, I realized that I just need to be focused and that if I just kept being effective at the job that I had, then eventually I would have an opportunity. It was discouraging at times, no doubt about that. But the, the fact that I had a unique opportunity to work for Lake Kelly at Austin P, who gave me an opportunity to be involved, the full-time assistant coach became ill in January and resigned. So there I am one year removed from playing with all the responsibilities of a full-time assistant coach. So I had to sink or swim. I had to learn. I had to learn how to teach. I had to learn how to communicate. And I had to be thorough in everything that I did. Lake Kelly gave me a tremendous amount of responsibility and to, to be to contribute to their program. And that's why I, I thought I was prepared when I went to the University of Kentucky, you know, to to contribute to that program. And by being at the University of Kentucky, the number one program winning program in the history of college basketball, I understood that they were winning before I ever got there. And in order for me to utilize the opportunity for being there, I had to find a way to contribute to the success of the program so that I could be recognized synonymously with the success that we were having. So I had I had some I had some goals in mind that I felt that if I just did my job, then eventually uh, I would have my opportunity. I was not bothered by the fact that I didn't have an opportunity to coach the interview for the head job in Kentucky. There were people who were concerned about it, but I was not because I felt that I had to earn the right to be there. I had to go prove that I was capable of being successful enough to be considered for the number one program in the history of college basketball. So I, I was never bothered by that. I just wanted to be prepared. I just wanted to make sure that I learned every phase of the program, offensive, defensive, running the camp, doing TV shows, radio shows. I wanted to make sure of game preparation, executing the drills, implementing game plans. I wanted to make sure that I understood everything so that I could be as prepared as possible. And then the most important thing, I wanted to make sure that I understood how to put together a staff of people that could, could give me the support that I needed to be successful. So all those things I was thinking about, I didn't have time to be bitter or second guess. I, just, I was working my butt off, trying to be prepared so that when my opportunity came, that I could do a good job. Well, I mean, that's what's amazing is that you didn't get discouraged. You didn't get down. Uh, and you persevered um, and made sure that you were going to basically make it to where they couldn't not choose you because you were qualified and you were the best candidate, regardless of the color of your skin. And I'm curious, how much do you think college basketball, in its own little bubble, and it's clearly had problems, but you think about uh, 1966 with Texas Western, the all-black starting five that beats Kentucky, you know, as a watershed moment. I mean, how much do you think college basketball helped with integration, you know, within that civil rights movement era uh, as we went into the 60s, into the 70s? There's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that sports, college sports, along with professional sports, but mainly college sports because you know, they're, they're more regional and they're in every state and every community. The, the, the professional sports, because they're kind of a manifestation of what happens in college. But integration of sports, I think, has done more for integration in America than any other thing that's happened in our life. Now, 
I'm not saying it's the most important thing, but because it was visible. Because when, when Todd Scott went to Carolina, uh, you know, that was significant. When Malloy went to Davidson, that was significant. When Bear Bryant started recruiting football players at Alabama, that was significant. And when Kentucky started bringing in African-American players, that was significant. It has really done a great for this opening the world's eyes, America's eyes, to the diversity, that diversity does not, it can be a positive thing if given opportunity. And I think that uh, I'm proud to have coached, I'm proud to have played, I'm proud to have gone to, to the schools that I've gone to, especially University of Tennessee and Martin, even Gaston Community College, because that gave me a chance to represent being the first black basketball player at UT Martin. I realized that a lot of eyes were on me, and I had to, I had to, to, to pave the way for other people to follow. And but I felt that burden. I felt that, that the importance of making sure that I represented properly. And and but that goes all the way back to uh, what my father told me when I was in third or fourth grade: Don't ever let anybody outwork you, and don't ever come to him complaining about not having the opportunity because of whatever the reason is. He always said, "You control your own destiny." And excuses show the line of weakness. Get the job done and your opportunity to come. And don't blame anybody if you're not successful. How much do you think players today, because we've seen this through social media, feel empowered to speak their mind regardless of what their head coach, AD, president, anyone else on campus might think that we've now crossed over to where, you know, if, if you feel passionate about, you know, injustice, inequality, um, you're going to speak out if you feel comfortable, and there should be no repercussions about that at all. Uh, we're seeing that obviously all over, you know, I wouldn't say on college campuses because we're not on college campuses right now due to the pandemic, but college athletes are speaking out, I think like never before, and feeling empowered to do so. How much do you think, you, how much are you noticing that, and do you think that will continue? Well, in the first place, <clears throat> I, I can only speak for Florida State men's basketball and how we communicate with with our players. We we as a staff try to give our youngsters the information that's necessary that if they ever have the opportunity to feel the need to speak out, that they're informed and that they understand the pluses, the minuses, the the front and the back and everything that's involved. We we operate try to operate in a preventive posture where we always are dealing with all the current issues that are going on in hopes that we give them enough information that when time comes that they they know how to speak and they understand what they're speaking about. I think we have to be careful uh, sometimes, and even as adults, you know, sometimes we can, we can allow ourselves to be emotional and, 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 and not be informed. I don't have a problem with our players speaking out because I feel like it's my responsibility to make sure that they are as informed as possible so they know how to address issues when they come up. See, we, 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 I, I know this. At 17, 18, 19 years old, and I was not as mature that, that, that I wasn't mature enough to address a whole lot of complicated issues. And everything that I knew, I pretty much learned and watched. So I'm not even sure uh, of how how adverse I was 
as to addressing certain issues. We, as a staff at Florida State, try to do everything we can to make sure our guys are informed. And I, I really don't have much concern about our guys making comments because we, we as a staff, try to inform them so they know exactly what to say and what's going on. So this is a bit of a, a sharp turn here, but um, you've done a tremendous job, uh, as you said, of of really taking young men, turning them into men, and empowering them as they've gone on to whatever it is in professional basketball or different aspects of life. And and you've got a great lineage wherever you've been uh, the, over the course of your career and, and what you've done, obviously, at Florida State and turning them into a uh, ACC title contender, a team that can get to the Elite Eight multiple times. Um it's just been tremendous of all your work, and uh, it, it's just great to see that you're getting recognized for that. So, uh, with that being said, I want to sort of create the Leonard Hamilton dream player uh, over the course of your career. And I'm going to start out by saying, and, and I know it's hard to pick one, and hopefully none of your former players will be offended, um, but uh, if you were to think of one player that, uh, and you can give me a 1 and 1A one or 1 and 1B, one if you will, that would be like your quarterback, your your playmaker that you think back over the course of your career, who would it be? When I look at our team, there are two players that I, I've had to pick from. One would be Luke Lopes, and he has the, I think he has the all-time assist record in a championship game in the ACC when we won the ACC tournament in 2012. And Trent Forrest, who is the winningest player in the history of Florida State basketball. Now, up until this season, Luke Lau and his class, his senior, his graduating class, they had won the most games of any group of players in the history of Florida State. So I would have to give the nod to Trent, number one, they're awful close, because he has won more games. And as well as Luke played, there were times that Trent was put in situations where he had to make the decision uh, that whether or not we win or lose a game, and he he we are we have lost three games at home in the last five years, and, and we lead the nation in over the last four or five years of games won on one possession or two possession games. So my point is, I have to give Trick the nod because statistically he has taken us to heights that Florida State has never known. All right. Mr. Clutch, who has been the clutch player for you? Now, I think this number is correct. There's no doubt that I have three players that have all hit winning shots when the game was on the line. Bacon uh, hit a big shot towards at Florida uh, on the last second shot. Bacon hit a big shot at Virginia uh, when the game was on the line. Spent Forrest made big shots at Notre Dame, big shots uh, against Purdue. Uh, he's always made right decisions. But the, 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 I have to give this to Michael Smith. If I remember correctly, and I, I didn't write this down in preparation for this conversation, but I believe he hit seven game-winning shots with the clock running down during his career at Florida State. I'm not real sure I've ever seen anybody do that. I think it was six or seven game-winning shots that he won while the clock was running down that he won for us in his career. So my nod would have to go to Michael Smith. Athlete, and you've had a lot of them. Who jumps out at you? 
Well, you're right. We have had some tremendous athletes. Chris Singleton, I will just say he was 6'9", with unbelievable quickness. I think he might have been defensive player of the year twice uh, at Florida State. Patrick Williams was only here as a freshman. And obviously, we think he's going to be a lottery pick with his athleticism. But the nod has to go to Al Thornton. Al Thornton was as fine an athlete as any player that I've ever coached. And I've coached Kenny Walker and Josh, people of that category, uh, Dirk Manifield, Richard Dumas at Oklahoma State. I have been around anybody any more athletic. My nod from an athletic standpoint has to go to Al Thornton. All right, your top shooter, who would it be? Malik Beasley was here for one year. Uh, shot, uh, I think, close, it was close to 40% from three. Uh, David Dilkus was here. I mean, I remember him with his feet stroke. But my nod has to go to Devin Vassell. Now, Tim Pickett, I don't know how in the world I can pick Devin over Tim Pickett. Devin shot 42% from three. For two years as a freshman and as a sophomore, he's one of the best all-time shooters that we've had here, along with David Dilkus. But my nod probably has to go to Tim Pickett because if he crossed half court and could see the orange on the rim, uh, it was a good shot for him. So the prettiest jump shot probably has to be Tim Pickett. All right, your bucket getter. This is the player that you could always count on. I mean, he could get you 20. Get you more if you want, but he was a stat stuffer. Who is it? Wow. I've been so very fortunate. Uh, Vaughn Wayford, Dwayne Bacon, Tim Pickett, Anthony, Tony Douglas, uh, Al Thornton. Wow. You know, uh, I've been spread the wealth, so try not to have the same player. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm probably, I'm probably going to have to go with Tony Douglas. Um, Tony was just a guy who just found a way just to get buckets uh, along with these other guys. But, you know, Tony, Tony was just um, a guy that when you need the bucket, he'd go, he'd go get one for you. Um, Bacon wasn't here long enough. Neither was XRM and, and Vaughn Wafer. Um, Tony was here with me for three years. And he had more of an opportunity uh, to, 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 they pull us out so many, many times. So I have to go to Tony Douglas for the back together. All right, defense has been your, uh, I mean, that's been your mainstay. That's your that's your your go-to. Your team's always defended. But you got to pick one. Uh, who would be your top defender? Yes, this is another tough one. Uh, Tony Douglas and Michael Snare, this will let you run your offense. And uh, Chris Singleton was defensive player of the year two times in a row. It just didn't get any better than him. He guarded everybody. Michael Snare was a major all-defensive team. I think Tony Douglas might have been defensive player of the year as well. So it's hard to pick the defense player of the year between those two. But uh, because Tim, uh, because Chris was 6'9 and so versatile, he could guard a power forward and he quick enough to guard a point guard. I'm going to have to go with, uh, with Chris Singleton. Uh, because he not only did it, but he was recognized by the ACC in an unbelievable way as well. And I've given credit for that. All right, now we're going to go to your your dirty work. It could be your rebounder, your rim protector, but also your guy. It could be an enforcer. 
I'm using a little uh, latitude here with this category. It could just be your top rebounder, your enforcer, your rim protector. Who do you put in this spot? Well, I have three guys. Gosh, I mean, I could go. Michael Ojo was an unbelievable dirty work guy. He just, just punished people. Phil Kofor gave me tremendous effort. Bernard James, uh, just um, um, a guy who, from a physical standpoint, uh, he just he had very few peers. Uh, during that year that we turned it around and went to the NCAA tournament, and the year that we won the title, whenever we had to have a, something happen to block a shot or a rebound. But the guy who I think was the, the all-time dirty work guy at Florida State, I have to give the nod to Ryan Reed. Ryan Reed was just an unbelievable dirty work guy who was just a banger, a physical guy. He never got, he didn't score a lot of points. He got drafted in the second round. He was a guy who just would not let you play your game, whatever you wanted to do. Gosh, it's so hard to pick between those three guys, but I'm going to roll with Ryan Reed. All right, who's your glue guy? Well, I have a guy named Baron Kitchens, and I have Miyandu Pottengelly and a well Terrence Mann. Miyandu, man, he, he was a guy who didn't, he never started a game. Was, uh, sixth man of the year, first-round draft pick, going to be an all-star, going to be in the Hall of Fame. Baron Kitchens came in when we really needed some stability. And he made all the right decisions. He's my glue guy. But but I have to give a nod to Terrence Mann. Terrence Mann was a guy who played four positions for me. He defended all the positions. Uh, he always made the right decision. He was a stat stuffer. Get bands, put back, steals, all the dirty work things, all the glue things that you needed to have win, breaking down pressure doing all the little things that gave you a chance to win. So my blue guy would have to be tough, man. All right, your basketball IQ. Who was that extension on the floor? And, and I will, I'm will. i going to give you both categories to end it here because they could be one and the same player or you could be thinking of two and you got to s- separate them. So you got your basketball IQ and then who's your team captain, okay, over the course of your career at Florida State. So basketball IQ and team captain, where would you go? Okay, basketball IQ and team captain. Wow. I'll put a list down here. Luke Laos, Darren Kitchen, Terrence Mann, and Trent Forrest. But um, I'm going to have to go with Trent Forrest because he was here four years. He had more of an opportunity. And fed us, he's the all-time winningest player in the history of our program. And from day one, he was a guy that had the ball in his hands and the decisions that had to be made on and off the court. Uh, he put got rattled, and our team was always composed a lot because of him. It's hard to pick between the parents and Kitchen and Luke Lout, but um, Trent got it done for us every time he was called upon. Team captain, I'd have to give that nod to Bernard James. Even though Trent and Terrence gave us tremendous leadership during that time, Bernard came in. He didn't even play high school ball. He'd been in the service. He was a little older, more mature. And during those periods of time, I think we lost two games in a row. One at Auburn and one at Clemson. And he just refused to allow us not to be strong mentally. He just refused to 
not give us leadership and keep us in the right frame of mind. We left and went to Virginia Tech the third game in a row after losing those two games. And it was a play in the game that I've, 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 I've never seen anywhere in my, all my coaching career. A basket we had to have, and he missed the layup and went back up, looked like he was on a trampoline. He missed the layup and went back up with his elbows over the rim and put the ball, dunked the ball back in the basket, and it inspired our whole team. And from that point on, we took off and went and won the ACC tournament. And that locked the cause of his leadership and his ability to give us the lead. So I'd have to give a nod to him. Yeah, I remember that was such a great story when he came out of the military and played for you. Um, so, all right, so I'm trying not to duplicate. What if we go back to the top? If we're going to put Trent Forrest for basketball IQ, what if we go with Luke as the quarterback to give him some love so he gets on the list? As much as I like to, I call it like I see it. I love Luke. You know, Luke has done his part. But um, you might have to go 1A, 1B there. That has to be close. Luke led us to our first ACC regular season. I mean, a tournament champion and is an all-time leading player in the history of our program. So you've got to make an exception there and have 1A, 1B. All right. <laughs> well, Leonard, as always, I love catching up with you. Um, your voice is needed now more than ever. Uh, and uh, more than anything, I just appreciate everything that you've done. I know we all do. Uh, they cover this sport and have for decades. Uh, but most importantly, stay safe. And hopefully we will talk to you about the season upcoming soon enough. Thank you. Andy Katz, that guy will rank his wife's dinners. He'll rank anything. All right, it's time for our Katz ranks of the top 10 rebounders of the past 10 years. Let's start at number 10. Jordan Caroline from Nevada, 2019. Big guard, stocky. Kind of reminded me of Vinnie Johnson, the microwave a little bit. Finished his career with 1,164 rebounds. Remember, a rebounder rim protector doesn't always have to be a forward. At number nine, finished his career playing for Bob Huggins, West Virginia in 2012. Um, really was a mainstay with the Mountaineers reaching the pinnacle uh, for that program. Uh, just an outstanding job um, over the course of his career uh, for Hugs. Kevin Jones, putting him at number nine, finished with 1,048 rebounds. At number eight, Scott Drew's had a lot of these guys, but I'm gonna go with Rico Gathers, finished his career in 2016, 1,134 boards. At number seven, I'm gonna stay in the Big 12 from Iowa State, 2014. Melvin Edgem, 1,051 boards. At number six, this player played for the national championship in 2016 before Chris Jenkins ripped the Tar Heels heart out. Bryce Johnson finished his career with 1,035. At number five, Kyle O'Quinn from Norfolk State in 2012. Norfolk State upset Missouri in the first round of the NCAA tournament. He finished with 1,092 boards. At number four, Draymond Green from Michigan State. I remember him before he played for the Warriors. Finished his career in 2012 at 1,096 boards. At number three, not necessarily intimidating, but he was always around the basket. Ethan Happ from Wisconsin, 1,217 boards, finished his career in 2019. At number two, one of my favorite players to cover from Minnesota, Jordan Murphy 
1,305 boards, finished his career in 2019, knew his skill and, and perfected it. And at number one, Kenneth Fareed from Moorhead State, 1,673 boards, finished his career in 2011. Kenneth Fareed exactly knew who he was. He was a rebounder. He did just that for Moorhead State. He is number one on my cat's ranks of the top rebounders of the past 10 years. All right, it's time to get a perspective from a player, from a student athlete. Here's Minnesota's Gabe Klauscher. Uh, Gabe, you are from Edina, Minnesota, play at the University of Minnesota. Um, and so I really want to get your perspective, obviously, because that's been the epicenter, the beginning of uh, what we've seen across the country, really across the globe in terms of protests since the murder of George Floyd mm. in Minneapolis. And, and we've also seen, I think, more student athletes speaking out and feeling empowered to speak out than I've ever seen in my lifetime. And I, I was not alive in the 60s, you know, in, to see what might have happened during the Vietnam era. But mm-hmm. as, uh, from anything I can remember, certainly my adult life, I've never seen as many student athletes feeling comfortable getting out there and speaking up. Uh, first, just what, your raw emotions of what the last couple of weeks have been like for you. What's it been like? Uh, it's been it's been very um, impactful, um, empowering. Uh, it's been it's been crazy. I mean, it, it felt like a movie. Everything was going on. Um, it, it was crazy that it was just in our community, in our backyard. But um, I feel like I feel like us as a community is really reaching out and supporting for everyone who lost businesses, lost uh, revenue, lost food and um, shelter and everything. So I feel like us as a community has really come together and tried to reach out to others in need. So look, it's awful to say, but. There have been countless episodes like this um, in my lifetime, in your lifetime. Why do you think the death of George Floyd had such a visceral reaction to where we're, we're clearly seeing and witnessing change? Yeah, I, just think, I think everybody's had enough. Um, everyone's had enough of the, the murders and crimes that have been covered up um, by the government and by police. Um, and I just think everyone's had enough and, and, and it was time it was time to stand up and, and and show action because I mean there there was no there was no justice there's no peace coming to us um us blacks and I just feel like everyone just had enough and it was time for us to to stand up for us. You know I've had many conversations over the last couple of weeks with your peers, um, and I really had uh, the two I had over the last week with Lamar Stevens of Penn State and Geo Baker from Rutgers really hit home. Where um, you know I my dad did not have this talk with me. I have not had this talk with my son. Um, yet they both told me every time they leave the house, they get the talk from their parents every time they're behind the wheel or a passenger to make sure they're careful, to make sure if they get pulled over, here's what happens. Uh, what's it been like for you? What, what's your personal experience? Um, well, I mean, I have a little, little bit more of a different experience. I mean, I have, I have two white parents. Um, one is my, my, was my stepdad, but I mean, I, I was, I, I mean, my birth dad, he, he he's told me before when I when I was with him um, when I was young just to he I mean he, he gave me the routine um, to to be to be respectful to the, to an officer um, hands on the dashboard and all that so I mean um, I mean I know the drill I know that um, I I am colored and that and that they do they do see me as supposedly a threat sometimes so I mean I, I do know the drill um, it's it's scary I mean my heart does race I mean if I get pulled over I've gotten pulled over before for speeding. Um, and I, I, was, I was scared. I mean, I, 
like it, it, it was frightening because I mean you don't know what what can happen in that situation. What what's it been like in the locker room? Um, and, and I'm curious how you think things will be different next fall. I mean, you know, your team has not had any problems or anything like that, but that I know mm-hmm. of. But I mean, just how do you think things will be different when you get back on campus? You know, even during COVID nineteen, but when you get back on campus, the way in which everyone's going to treat each other, whether they are white, black, brown, uh, regardless, uh, you know, when we get back into that community setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I mean, my team, um, we, we've always been good. We've always been um, good with inviting um, different faces, different cultural backgrounds, ethnicities um, onto the campus and onto the team. So I feel like we don't have, we don't have any problem with that. But it's just going to be a lot different around, like, like the school part of it. So if we if we if we're back on campus and for, with school time and everyone's there, I feel like it's gonna be a lot different. There's gonna be some things, um, some some groups probably, um, trying to empower black culture on campus. So that hopefully that would be good. That they can get something started with that. Um, but I feel like it's gonna be it's gonna be a little different on campus. Yeah, I just want to go back to my earlier point about student athletes standing up and Miles Kale from Seton Hall. He he was at a rally. He was speaking out. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just don't know if that would have been as accepted, uh, certainly not in the NFL, but I mean, even in college athletics uh, six months ago mm-hmm. um, and college coaches certainly weren't marching with their players, um, you know, and they wouldn't, you know, if you had to say, hey, look, I got to go to this protest, this speech or something, uh, I may be late for practice or I don't know, you know, there, there could be situations like that. I mean, uh, and I think coaches now are going to have to adapt and I think they will. Um, but why do you feel that student athletes, I, I know you were saying earlier, People are saying enough is enough, but also why there's why do you think they're feeling so much more confident to just express themselves? Uh, cause I think it's like it's, it's more eye opening right now. Um, and it's one of the biggest things that's been that's talked about um, over the news and over over social media right now. And it's still going on. So I feel like right now is like a time that like everyone knows that it's OK to, to reach out and step out and, and make your voice heard. How do you think sports can heal once we get to that point? What do you mean by heal? Well, I mean, just um, it's a community together. We've seen it, obviously, post 9-11 and major events. But um, and, and we've seen where where, you know, I can't breathe T-shirts after Eric Gardner. I mean, you know, the the, the ability to express yourself mm-hmm. in a community setting where everyone all eyes are on you. Um, and I don't know if heal is the right word, but can maybe bring people together for a common cause. I mean, I think athletics still can do that. How, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, for sure, I feel like um, athletes can do that. I mean, I mean, us as athletes have a big impact on people and fans and in today's community. So, I mean, us us stepping out, us having our voices heard, can help a lot um, with the fans and, and the audience um, out in the world today. So, I mean, like even having a shirt that says "I can't breathe" or "No justice, no seats can really be impactful if it's, if it's being if it's being worn by being being worn by one of uh, a fan's favorite player, and it, and it can help. It can help go a long way. And maybe maybe a team can can come together, um, make some food, and and bring them out to the community, and and, and that shows that us us as a team is is ready and ready to help um, the, the families in need. Well, there's no question for other reasons. Obviously, eyes will be on Minnesota, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Um, you guys were close last season. Um, you know. Who knows what would happen if there had been more games to play? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly with Daniel Turu, he's off to the NBA. Yeah. Um, a lot of transfers. What's your level of optimism for this team once we get to what we hope is a uh, semi-normal season, whenever that is, if it hopefully starts on time? Yeah, I feel like we have, we're going to have a really good team. 
Um, I feel like uh, it's going to be a little different. Um, instead of just um, post, it's going to be the ball movement should be good. Uh, fast break should be high. It should be um, playing and, and, and flowing a lot. Um, but um, I feel really good about this team. Um, we have a lot of good guards on our team and that can help down the road as well. So, I mean, I feel, I feel really good about this team. Well, Gabe, I really appreciate your insight in all this. Uh, look forward to obviously chatting with you uh, once we get to closer to the season and into the season. And most importantly, stay safe out there, okay? Thank you very much. Thank you for this uh, call and talk. Since we last recorded, the NCAA announced the NBA draft early entry withdrawal deadline will be August 3rd or 10 days after the NBA draft combine, which still could be done virtually in July. We'll have more on this topic, I'm sure, over the next month. Student-athletes are also back on campus in some spots for voluntary workouts. More on that coming over the course of the summer. And the NCAA also, through the efforts of Georgia Tech assistant coach Eric Reveno, a former Stanford assistant and Portland head coach, has now encouraged all schools to take November 3rd, Federal Election Day, off from competition. Most schools and conferences are on their way to blocking that date. For now, stay safe, be well. Thanks for listening to March Madness 365 and for our staff at Turner Sports, who've done a tremendous job during difficult times. I'm Andy Katz.